The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. If we are surrounded with the Lord Jesus Christ, encompassed by Him, then nothing can touch us unless it passes through Him. If Satan is to reach us with one of his fiery darts, he must first of all pierce the Lord Jesus Christ who protects us. Nothing in the world can ever touch us until it has passed through our Lord. He will not allow anything to come to us by accident, danger, or harm. He will allow nothing to touch us that has not been screened through His will. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Way of Escape. Harry Houdini was always able to escape from seemingly hopeless situations. He could be handcuffed, put in a straitjacket, locked in a trunk, and dropped into the sea, and he would always find a way to escape. Humanity is helplessly in bondage to fleshly desires, temptation, sin, and death, and under the certain judgment of God. We are in a desperate, hopeless situation. What has God done to provide a way of escape for us? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Way of Escape. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy grace and favor, which was first bestowed upon our fathers and then upon us, children of thy grace. Wilt thou bless the truth to each listening heart in this hour? We know that we have nothing of ourselves, but we ask that the word may go forth in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, that our faith might stand not in the wisdom of men, but in thy power, O Lord. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are treating today the text in Romans 6.11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are some texts in the scripture which are especially full of meat, and this is one of them. The truth that is to be drawn from this portion of scripture is bound up with the exposition of the individual words. When we have found the meaning of likewise, reckon, and dead unto sin, and when we have put ourselves into the yourselves of the text, we shall know how to reckon ourselves to be alive unto God. The word which is translated likewise 
has already occurred eight times in this epistle to the Romans, and in all the other cases has been translated so or even so. The idea is so well known that it needs almost no explanation. Thayer's lexicon says of the Greek word, by virtue of its native demonstrative force, it refers to what precedes and renders it in the manner spoken of, in the way described, in the way it was done. It refers to similitudes and comparisons and serves to adapt them to the case in hand. It takes the place of an explanatory clause, such as things having been thus settled, this having been done then. Now it's in the light of this that we must understand this word. We have just completed the study of the first ten verses, the paragraph which sets forth in the strongest language that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, and that God the Father had planned this death and resurrection in order to prepare the judicial process of our justification and to prepare the consequent elevation of the believing sinner, even to participation with Christ in the eternal life of his resurrection. The whole force of the argument turns on this word, likewise. We might paraphrase it thus. In exactly the same manner that the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross and died, thus fulfilling every demand that a holy God could make against the guilty sinners who were counted by God to be in Christ in his death, and in view of the fact that every demand having been met, there are no more claims whatsoever against Christ, and that, therefore, he can never die again, and has been freed forever from the dominion of death, and lives henceforth with every thought turned toward the heavenly Father and his glory, even so you and I, the individual sinner, having trusted in the work which the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf and in our place, we have been united with the Lord in all of his work and in all of his victory. Since he can never die again, neither can the believer die spiritually. Since death has no more dominion over Christ, death has no more dominion over the believer in the sight of God. Since the risen Lord Jesus Christ lives unto God and we are counted as being in him, we live unto God in our position in the sight of God. Is Christ seated in the heavenly places on the right hand of God the Father? So he tells us that he has raised us up together with him and has made us to sit together with him. Now it is evident that there is a difference between our position and our condition. We know that we are not now in heaven so far as our physical bodies are concerned and so far as our material living is concerned. We know that we yet live in circumstances of sin and distress in a body that is marked by decline and decay, with a soul that turns by nature to its Adamic roots, with a mind that wants to be enthroned in the place of dominion, and in the midst of a world that crucified Christ, and whose carnal mind is enmity against God. But God is telling us that there is a great possibility of triumph, and that in the plan of God a great victory is available for us, if we will but reach out and lay hold of it. An analogy may help to show some Christians their present position and how to change it for the better and cause unsaved people to understand why they see such flaws in the lives of those who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, 
but who do not show his presence in their daily lives. Suppose that a lawyer in New York received papers from a lawyer in Texas asking him to look up the next of kin of a client who had died in the Southwest, possessed of great wealth. The evidence shows that a rough but strong character emigrated to the West. He had the good fortune to settle on land, which later brought in great gushers of oil, and died with a tremendous estate and without a will. His movements were traced backwards, we will say, to New York, and it's discovered that he had a sister who had lived in the city at that time, and that she had died leaving no other heir than a grandchild who had turned out to be a beggar. That beggar, we will say, is occupying a stand near Times Square and is attempting to wheedle a few coins out of the passers-by in that area. The lawyer begins to make investigations, and after considerable checking and double-checking and triple-checking, he becomes convinced that the beggar is the rightful owner of the estate in Texas. The knowledge is communicated to the attorneys in Texas. It is arranged that a considerable sum of money shall be deposited for the immediate use of the heir, who is someday to enter into possession of the entire state. Now you walk down the street with a lawyer in New York and stand and watch the beggar from a distance. That man, says the lawyer, is worth approximately $30 million, and I have just deposited one million of it in a trust company here for his drawing account. The observer might say with some justice that the man certainly did not look like a man who was worth millions. And not only was it certain that he did not look like a millionaire, he was also not acting like a millionaire. His condition was that of a beggar. His position was that of a millionaire. You now approach the man with the lawyer and listen while the lawyer informs the man of his new position and estate. The man has some memory of his grandmother, and he's heard tales of a great uncle who went out to the new frontiers and struck it rich. He acknowledges his identity and smiles at the prospect of his riches. But right at this point, there are two lines of conduct which the man may follow. Let me make the application of this parable to that which I have already set forth before proceeding to the discussion of the conduct of the man after hearing the news. The Lord Jesus Christ has died on the cross, and by his death has prepared for us a wonderful estate. It includes pardon, peace, purity, power, hope, heaven, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself as the bridegroom for the bride. His death assured the salvation of the believer and the present possession of eternal life. We have been born again, and all of the promises of God are yea and amen unto us in Christ. We have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. So far, the illustration and its analogy are clear. But right here, there are two lines of conduct which the believer may follow. Let us look at the beggar again. He may sit in the midst of his former life, and even rejoice over the good news which he has heard. But we'll say that he does not move toward the enjoyment of all that has been provided for him, and which has been placed close at hand in a drawing account for his present use. He wishes to remain among his old haunts and among his old companions. Let us face the fact that there are many Christians who live a life that is not far from such a condition. They have been given all things in Christ, but they do not joyfully avail themselves of the riches and go on to live in the power and possession of the wealth which has become theirs in title. 
but rather do you find them going to heaven miserably, living low Christian lives? Now the proper course of the action for the beggar, naturally, is to be washed and clothed anew and to fling his old garments away and to leave his old haunts forever. He should joyfully enter into the possession of his possessions, secure a home that is suitable to his new life, and to establish friendships which shall adorn his new condition, and learn to live in all things in the light of a new life, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching out unto the things that are consistent with such a transformed existence. And most certainly, this is the proper procedure for the one who has been made aware of all that has been done for him in Jesus Christ. The normal life of a Christian should be a healthy growth in Christ. That may not be natural, but it's supernatural, and therefore the normal thing, since that is what God provided for us. This is the path which the Lord has traced for us, growth, and he has provided all the means for us to walk in it. I go so far sometimes as to wonder if there is the reality of new life in Christ wherever that life is not lived. I'm not saying that there will be no defeats, but I am saying that there must be growth. The Bible does not say that the love of Christ should constrain us, but it does say the love of Christ constrains us. Phillips paraphrases the passage thus, What we are is utterly plain to God, and I hope to your consciences as well. If we have been mad, that is, as though insane, it was for God's glory. If we are perfectly sane, it's for your benefit. At any rate, there has been no selfish motive. The very spring of our actions is the love of Christ. We look at it like this. If one died for all men, then, in a sense, they all died. And his purpose in dying for them is that their lives now should be no longer lived for themselves, but for him who died and rose again for them. This means that our knowledge of men can no longer be based on their outward lives. Indeed, even though we knew Christ as a man, we do not know him like that any longer. For if a man is in Christ, he becomes a new person altogether. The past is finished and gone. Everything has become fresh and new. Now, what is it in the life of a Christian that will make him act like a beggar who has been given title to millions and who refuses to leave his old ways of beggary for a life of wealth? The answer is found in our text. The believer has failed to reckon himself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. Strange that God would have to tell a man to reckon himself alive when what he needs most is life. Reckon. We've come across this word reckon on several occasions. In our study of the fourth chapter, we found the word 11 times in that one chapter. In our first study on the word, in the third verse of that fourth chapter, we pointed out that it was variously translated, numbered, counted, reckoned, imputed, accounted, and estimate. It can readily be seen, therefore, that there is an idea of mathematical reckoning in the depths of the meaning of this word. The procedure is simply that of acting upon a set of facts, in spite of any of the difficulties or obstacles. To get an illustration that will show forth the truth in every part is difficult, but I can give an approximation in the following story. When I was a small boy, perhaps ten, the following incident occurred. 
One of my older sisters practiced the piano every evening after dinner. The piano was in a room in which the light switch was on the far side of the room from the door by which she usually entered. She was afraid of the dark, and on scores of occasions she had come to ask me the favor of going and lighting it for her. It was practically a ritual in that part of my boyhood. On one occasion I saw her come into the room where I was sitting near the fire. I expected her to come to me and ask me the usual favor. Instead, she went across the room to the door of the dark room, stood there hesitatingly, and then, as though she had braced herself for the ordeal, went into the darkened room and turned the light switch herself. I leaped to my feet and went into the room, astonished, to ask her what had happened. And wasn't she frightened any more? She answered, I was just as afraid as ever, but I decided to act as though I were not. Now, I'm aware that such an illustration might be twisted to mean that faith is no more than self-hypnosis. But if anyone does think such a thing, you are among the swine before whom the Lord Jesus commanded that no pearls should be cast. True faith acts on the supernatural facts, and the result is a supernatural result. It is not natural for people to live in triumph over pride and arrogance and folly. It is not natural for people to live in triumph over the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. It is true that there are people who think that they live above these things without any faith in Christ, but they are deceiving themselves. They are like the young man who told the Lord that he had kept all the commandments from his youth up. The Lord pricked the bubble of that hollow pretense with one sharp thrust, revealing to the young man that his possessions were a god before the Lord and that he was living in covetousness, which is idolatry. But let us leave the unsaved people and their hypocrisies and let us come to those who are truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You wish to live above the warfare of life and rest in the quiet of triumph and the joy of victory. Much of the secret is found here. Let us see how it works in practice. You're a human being, subject to all of the temptations that assail mankind. You know from experience that you have some sin which you know as your besetting sin. You've desired to overcome that particular thing, and you've been defeated by it time and time and again. And now you come face to face with the truth of this verse. How is it to be applied practically? We've been told that there is no temptation which hath taken us but such as is common to man, and that God is faithful, and that he will not permit that any temptation should reach us that is beyond our capacities to overcome, but will, with the temptation, also provide a way of escape in order that we may be able to bear it. The way of escape is to be found in our text. We must reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we see the temptation coming and feel ourselves in grips with it, we must flee to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and see him there dying for us, and then see beyond to the open tomb and know that he has been raised because of our justification and that sin has no more dominion over him. If sin has no dominion over him, it cannot have dominion over me if I am in him, and it cannot have dominion over you if you are in him. I remember as a boy hearing a story concerning the safety of an American citizen in the midst of a Latin American revolution. The citizen was held by the authorities who had seized power, 
and for some reasons which did not make an impression upon me when I heard the story, the man was sentenced to death. But there was an American officer present who rushed into the place where the victim was about to face the firing squad. He took a large American flag and draped it entirely around the man as he stood before his captors. If you shoot this man, he cried out, you will fire through the American flag and incur the wrath of a whole nation. In those days, America spoke softly but carried a big stick, and the revolutionary who was in charge knew the force with which he had collided. The prisoner was released and went on his way with the officer who had come to his rescue. The illustration may be trite, but it has this in its favor. It does show the meaning of the text and illustrate its point. If we are surrounded with the Lord Jesus Christ, encompassed by him, then nothing can touch us unless it passes through him. If Satan is to reach us with one of his fiery darts, he must first of all pierce the Lord Jesus Christ who protects us. Nothing in the world can ever touch us until it has passed through our Lord. He will not allow anything to come to us by accident, danger, or harm. He will allow nothing to touch us that has not been screened through his will. But with matter of temptation and sin which arise within us and which seek to bring us into subjection, we may rest in triumph if we cry to the Lord in time of trouble that we need him and that we wish him to be our guard and our guide, our shield and our protector. I have known the joy and power over this triumph a million times in my life. Someone may ask me if I've also known the shame and humility of defeat. The answer will come honestly that of course I have. But where the triumph is counted with a million, the defeats may be counted only in a thousand. And most wonderful, the proportion of victories over defeats becomes increasingly great. How wonderful it is that nothing can touch us unless it has passed through the will of God. As I talk to you, I have come a few minutes ago from being with a man who had had one of the most terrible things happen in his home that could ever happen in any human home. A child had been born, and the child was defective. And I could see his emotion. Wonderful child of God this man was, and he told how he had accepted this from God. And I will never, as long as I live, forget how he straightened his shoulders and said, This is my son, and I have taken him from the Lord. And I opened my Bible, and I showed to him that text in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11, where God says, Who made man's mouth? Who made the dumb? Who made the blind? Who made the seeing? Have not I the Lord? And I added, Who made the defective child? Have not I the Lord? And I'll not forget how he looked at that verse and said, I never saw that in the Bible before, but I believe it. Ah, there's triumph, there's victory, there's reckoning yourself to be dead unto sin and alive unto God. Yes, victory is ours by the million. For just as we reckon ourselves to be in Christ and therefore immune from defeat, as long as we have hold of him, joined to him in his death, so also we learn to reckon ourselves to be alive unto God. I am alive in him, we cry, and that cry of faith and triumph is that which must send the enemy scurrying in retreat. We read in Revelation, they overcame him, the devil, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
and it is thus that we must overcome. God provided his part, the blood of the Lamb, and we answer with the part which has been given to us by him, the word of our testimony, that we accept by faith that we are joined to the Christ who was once dead, but who is alive forevermore, and joined to him, we are dead unto sin, and we are alive unto God. And our Father and our God, we pray thee that thou shalt take the truth to each heart. Thou alone knowest the burdens that are being borne by the vast number that listen, and what each individual burden is. Wilt thou meet the shape of that need in this hour? May each heart recognize that thou art closer to us than feeling, and nearer than hands and feet, ready to bless. So strengthen, we pray thee. And if there be any who are not yet born again and who resist thee, give them restlessness that they may know no peace until they rest in Christ. But upon thy believing own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And to thee be all the glory now until Jesus come and forever. Amen. God is faithful and has provided a way to escape every situation of temptation. We must learn to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Way of Escape. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Way of Escape or simply request message number R6-27. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, All Things Work Together. Romans 8.28 declares, We know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, even to them who are called according to His purposes. Yet many times we may feel that nothing good could ever come out of our problems and circumstances. This free booklet shows how this precious and powerful promise applies to any situation you may be facing and can fill you with hope and encouragement when you need it the most. Ask for your free copy of All Things Work Together when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.